As we've seen over the past month and a half, each of these seven cities that are addressed in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, uh, each of them was unique. Uh, each of them was a little different than the other uh, cities, and the churches in each of those cities was rather unique. Remember this, we looked at this map of this kind of a, a mail circuit that would go clockwise through Asia Minor. We started with that first city of Ephesus. It was kind of like the New York City of Asia Minor. Then we looked at Smyrna. It's kind of like the Acapulco or Puerto Vallarta of Asia Minor. Then we looked at Pergamum. That was kind of like the Washington, D.C., but it was really a cross between Washington, D.C. and Woodstock because of the crazy religious practices that went on in that town. Next up was Thyatira. That was kind of like a Fort Irwin of Asia Minor. Then we looked at Sardis. It was kind of like a Beverly Hills, a rather wealthy city. Uh, Last week, we looked at Philadelphia, city number six. Uh, We said Philadelphia was kind of like Ontario. It was a uh, kind of a logistics hub there in uh, Asia Minor. And then today we're going to look at the seventh and final city, the city of Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea was located about 45 miles southeast of that city of Philadelphia. And Laodicea, you could say, was kind of like what? Well, it was kind of like a Silicon Valley there in Asia Minor in the first century. It was kind of like Silicon Valley because they had these various industries that made it a very, very wealthy town. Uh, Those people were loaded. We talked about this a few weeks ago that in that fifth city of Sardis, uh, that was a pretty wealthy town because of the gold reserves they had uh, there in the rivers that went through that town. But this town of Laodicea, I think it's safe to say, especially when you look at it per capita, was a very wealthy town, even more so than those who lived in Sardis. And so it had these industries uh, that made it quite wealthy. Number one, it was known for its banking industry. There were certain coins that were minted there in Laodicea. And because it was the hub of banking in that region, they had probably a few tons of gold uh, in their vaults there, whatever kind of vaults they used in those days. Uh, It was also well known because of its textile industries. Uh, It was known throughout the Roman Empire for putting out some of the most beautiful cloth for garments uh, that men and women wore. They were especially well known for their black wool. That's why we've got the the black wooled sheep on the screen here. Uh, They were famous for their black wool. They put out some beautiful black wool textiles and clothing. And then finally was known uh, around the Roman Empire for being a university town. Uh, It had this medical university uh, that was highly respected and sought after, and that medical university specialized in ophthalmology, uh, the study of the eyes. And so those experts in ophthalmology there in Laodicea had created this eye balm. Uh, This is an eye salve, much more up-to-date than they had back then, of course, but they created this this balm or this eye salve uh, that people from around the Roman Empire would highly seek. Uh, They would come all the way to Laodicea to get it because as they were traveling through the desert and getting dry and tired and weary eyes, this salve worked wonders. Uh, It helped to moisturize and and open closed eyes, and and so it was highly sought after. And so you had these three industries there in town, banking and textiles and the medical industry, that made this a very, very wealthy town. 
And because of these three booming industries, uh, as I mentioned, the per capita income in Laodicea had to have been higher than any of the other six cities of Revelation. These folks were loaded. Last week I mentioned the great earthquake of AD 17 that leveled the city of Philadelphia. Well, there was another big earthquake in Asia Minor in the first century. It took place in AD 60, and its epicenter was closer to Laodicea. So when that earthquake leveled much of the city of Laodicea, the Laodiceans were so wealthy, they wrote a letter to Rome and said, don't help us, don't send any aid. We don't need it. We'll pay the bill ourselves. We do not need a thing. So Laodicea was filled with upper class and upper middle class bankers and businessmen and educators, and so was the church in Laodicea. It seems clear that the Christians in Laodicea were pretty wealthy compared to the Christians in cities like Smyrna or Pergamum. Before we read Jesus' letter to the church at Laodicea, there's one more important detail about the town that I want you to know about. Laodicea had one big Achilles heel. It didn't have a decent water source. Uh, They couldn't dig wells, and uh, the nearby streams were polluted, and so they had to pipe in water from nearby towns. And so you had the town of Colossae, uh, to which Paul wrote the letter of Colossians that many of you have read. Colossae was about 10 miles away, and then there was Hierapolis, which was 6 miles away. Uh, Colossae uh, was very well known for having some wonderful mountain spring water. Uh, They had these mountains behind the city of Colossae, and the snowpack would melt in the spring and summer, and it would roll down the hills into these beautiful little pools. And so Colossae had this wonderful, fresh, ice-cold water. And so that water, when it was piped into Laodicea, started out cold, but by the time it traveled some five miles to Laodicea, it was pretty lukewarm. And so that was the best they could do is to have this underground aqueduct that they could afford because they were so loaded. They build this underground aqueduct with these stone pipes and they pipe the water in from Colossae. They also had the idea of piping in uh, water from Hierapolis since the town was a little bit closer than Colossae was. But Hierapolis, it was well known for having these hot springs. These natural hot springs were wonderfully therapeutic. People would go and just soak in these springs, and it was nice, clean water. But unfortunately, if you took that hot water and traveled six miles from Hierapolis to Laodicea, that hot water, by the time it reached Laodicea, would also be lukewarm. And so that was the Achilles heel of the town. They had a problem with their water. Their water was lukewarm, it was nasty, it was nauseating, and Jesus will latch onto that as he writes what he writes to the church there in Laodicea. So we are in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 14. Once again, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14, Jesus' letter to the Christians and the church there in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. 
You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless us as we study his word today. Well, in verse 14... Jesus addresses the letter to the angel. Remember, that means the messenger or the pastor of the church in Laodicea. And then Jesus gives this brief description of himself. He says, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Jesus begins by pointing out that he is the Amen. He's the Amen. Now, what does that mean? What does he mean when he says he's the amen? Well, as all of you know, when Christians pray, we almost always will end our prayers with an amen. Why do we do that? Why do we end our prayers with amen? Well, that word amen is a Hebrew word. It's just carried over from the Hebrew. And amen means so be it or let it be so. And at its root, it means truth. Now, that probably rings true with many of you because in the middle of a sermon, if you hear something that's particularly good that you agree with, we tend to say, Amen. In other words, truth. That's truth. And at the end of a prayer, much like when Jesus began His teaching, He would often say, Truly, truly, I say unto you. In other words, telling us what I'm about to say to you is true. At the end of our prayers, when we say Amen, we are saying what I have just prayed is true. And anything I've asked for, I pray, O God, that it would come true according to your will. And so amen means truth. It also means let it be. So what is Jesus teaching us here when he calls himself the amen? He is teaching us this. He has the last word on all matters related to life and salvation and judgment. And he is the God of truth. Don't you agree with that? Jesus has the final say. Jesus has the last word. He is the great amen. He is the God of truth. Next in verse 14, Jesus declares that he is the faithful and true witness. What does that mean? Well, the second title of Jesus reinforces the first one. Because Jesus is the God of truth, everything he says is trustworthy and true. Amen? Amen? Everything's trustworthy and true that he says. So when he is an eyewitness to something and he takes the witness stand and he details what he has seen, it is completely trustworthy and true. Amen? Amen. So Jesus Christ is about to take the witness stand and speak the truth about the wickedness he has witnessed in the Laodicean church. And what he speaks will be 100% trustworthy and true. He wants the Laodicean Christians to know, I'm about to lower the boom, but I want you to know who's doing that. 
The one who is lower in the boom is the one who is 100% trustworthy and true. You can take it to the bank, what I'm telling you. It is absolutely true. Finally, in verse 14, Jesus declares that he is the ruler of God's creation. Here, Jesus is emphasizing the fact that God the Father has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. Remember what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. He says, Therefore God the Father exalted Jesus Christ to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? So before Jesus lays into the members of the Laodicean church, he tells them plainly, Listen up. I have the last word on all matters because I am the God of truth. My testimony is 100% trustworthy and true, and I have all authority in heaven and on earth to carry out any judgment that I threaten and fulfill any promise that I make. He wants them to understand, if you hear me speaking a threat, that is not an idle threat. I am the God of heaven and earth. I have all authority. And I have every bit the authority that's needed to carry out any threat, any judgment that I put before you. And at the same time, those promises that I'll end my letter with, I have absolute authority to carry out every one of those promises as well. Okay, let's move into verse 8. Remember that Jesus usually follows that basic outline of starting with a praise or two and then a rebuke or two and then finally some promises. He's been following that three-point outline for the most part in his letters to the first six of the seven churches. Here, Jesus doesn't follow that outline. He doesn't follow that outline because there's nothing to praise about the members of the church in Laodicea. He doesn't follow this three-point outline. He doesn't offer the Laodicean church any praises in verse 8 or in verse 9 or in verse 10. You look at this entire letter. Jesus has absolutely nothing good to say about this church. Jesus leveled rebukes against five of the seven churches of Revelation. All five of those churches were messed up in one way or another. The Ephesian church, remember, lacked love. The Pergamum church uh, struggled with compromise. The Thyatira church was morally polluted. Uh, Jesus said to the church in Sardis that they had a reputation for being alive, but they were dead. You would think that you couldn't get any worse than being a dead church, but evidently you can because Jesus levels the harshest rebuke of all against this church in Laodicea. He rebukes it even more harshly than that dead church of Sardis. At least the Sardis church had a few Christians in it who were alive and remained faithful to Christ and His Word. But evidently, it seems clear at least, that the church at Laodicea didn't have any faithful Christians in it. As far as churches go, it was the worst of the worst. It was an absolute abomination to God. And Jesus makes that clear in his letter to the church. Now, if you're outlining this letter, here's a simple two-point outline of Jesus' letter to the church of Laodicea. Number one, he rebukes the church. We find that in verses 15 through 19. And if you're taking notes, you can say the second point is this. After Jesus rebukes the church, he offers the church a few promises in verses 20 through 22. Well, let's start with verses 15 through 19 where Jesus 
rebukes the church. I want you to look again at the first part of Jesus' rebuke in verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. If you look at a number of different English translations, that Greek word that's translated in the NIV as spit can be translated a few different ways. Many translations, they translate it this way. Jesus says that he will vomit you out of his mouth. Uh, other translations, especially like the old King James says, uh, Jesus says, I will spew you out of my mouth. So spit, vomit, spew are all perfectly good translations of the word Jesus uses here. Now, most evangelical Christians see these terms hot and cold and lukewarm in these verses, and they see them as spiritual metaphors. We say that God wants us to be hot Christians. He wants us to be passionate for Him. He wants us to be on fire for Him. Uh, God wants us to, to serve Him with, with gusto. Those things are all true. We say that Jesus doesn't want us to be lukewarm in our faith, lukewarm in our love, or lukewarm in our obedience of Christ. We say Jesus would rather have us be ice cold, completely separated from Christ, than be lukewarm. Well, is that what Jesus is saying here? And honestly, the answer is not really. That's not really Jesus' focus here. More true to the context is this interpretation. Hot water is good. The hot water in Hierapolis has a purpose. It's therapeutic. It warms cold bodies and it invigorates tired muscles. Cold water is also good. The cold water in Colossae has a purpose. It refreshes and rejuvenates those who are hot and thirsty. But lukewarm water is no good at all. It doesn't serve a purpose. It's ugly. It tastes bad. And it makes you want to throw up. Let me ask you, are you one who prefers hot drinks or cold drinks? So if you like hot drinks, there's a good chance that you're a fan of coffee. Okay, Not as many hot tea drinkers in America, but chances are you're a fan of coffee if you like hot drinks. Let me ask you, if you put your coffee steaming hot just like you like it in your car and leave it overnight and come back next morning, do you like drinking that coffee? No, it's nasty, right? Because it's old and lukewarm. Those of you who like cold drinks, you like ice. You know, I, I like cold drinks better than hot drinks. And so one of my favorites is put in my cold drink with nugget ice. Man, Chick-fil-A nugget ice, it's amazing. Freddy's has it too. I love nugget ice. I just chomp on it and enjoy it with my drink. When that nice cold drink has been sitting in your car overnight, what does it taste like the next day? Who wants to have Coke that's been sitting in the car half a day? It's terrible. It's lukewarm. None of us like lukewarm drinks. Whether you like a drink hot or cold, none of us like it lukewarm. Well, Jesus turns to the Laodicean Christians and he basically says this, as the faithful and true witness, I have closely examined your deeds and they're no good at all. They don't have a purpose. They're ugly. They taste bad and they make me want to puke. Now, is, is that exaggerating what Jesus is saying here? Not at all. Jesus' language in the original Greek is very graphic here. He's not talking about a light trickle coming down his cheek out of his mouth. 
He's not talking about a, a light trickle here. He's talking about a full-on hurl spewing forth from his mouth. That's a pretty shocking thing to say to a church full of Christians, isn't it? Which begs the question, were the Laodiceans in this church Christians at all? Were they Christians at all? It's a good question. Were the members of this Laodicean church saved or unsaved? There's no doubt that they thought they were saved. They thought they were Christians. But what was the truth? I really wrestled with this question this past week. And to be honest with you, I don't have a definitive answer. I really don't know for sure if this church of Laodicea had Christians in it or if it was filled with non-Christians. Were they the worst form of saved Christians? Or were they just non-Christians pretending to be Christians? I'm not certain. Take a look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 17. He says, You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It's clear from what Jesus says here that the sinful culture of Laodicea had penetrated the church there. Uh, the Laodiceans outside the church bragged, I am rich. And so did the Laodiceans inside the church. The Laodiceans outside the church had told Rome after the great earthquake, we have acquired wealth and we don't need anything. And the Laodiceans inside the church told God the same thing. We don't need you. We don't need anything. The Laodiceans in the church said they were blessed, but Jesus said, no, you're not. You're wretched. They thought they should be envied, but Jesus said, no, you shouldn't. You're pitiful. The Laodiceans said they were rich, but Jesus said, no, you're not. Spiritually speaking, you're dirt poor. They thought their eyes were wide open to their position with God, but Jesus tells them the truth is you're completely blind. They thought they were the best-dressed Christians in Asia Minor, but Jesus says, no, you're not. I look at you, and spiritually, you're buck naked. You don't have any nice clothes on as far as I'm concerned. You have no shame. You have no shame. Many Christian pastors and teachers look at what Jesus says here, and they say there is no way that Jesus would ever say these things to Christians. He would never tell a Christian that he was about to vomit him out of his mouth. There's no way that Jesus would ever tell a Christian that she is wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So many Christians, especially those who are of the Calvinist persuasion, believe the church at Laodicea was a church filled with non-Christians. Not a saved one in the bunch. They might have had Jesus' name on their building, but they never had Jesus in their hearts. They claimed that Jesus was their Savior, but He was never their Lord. Perhaps. But there's a reason why I'm not absolutely convinced that's the right interpretation. It might be, but I'm not convinced it is. For starters, Jesus addresses them in verse 1, or it's not the first one, but the first verse of His letter here, verse 14. He addresses them in the exact same way that He addresses the other six churches that we know had Christians in them. He calls them a church, and Jesus addresses the church's pastor. I think that means something. 
Also, Jesus says in verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. That sounds strikingly similar to what we read God saying elsewhere in Scripture directed to his followers. If you look at a few examples of that, I'll put a few on the screen here for you. Look at Job 5.17. God says, blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. That's true, isn't it? Uh, What about uh, Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12? My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. What about what the writer of Hebrews says over in Hebrews 12, verse 10? God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. All that to say... A case can be made that the Laodicean church had Christians in it. They were just the most self-deceived, faithless, and disobedient Christians that you could ever imagine. They were Christians, but just barely. I would suggest to you that their present salvation or lack of salvation wasn't the biggest issue, though. I believe the bigger issue is what Jesus says is about to happen. If they continue in their rebellion and refuse to repent, Jesus is going to vomit them out of his mouth. That means that the church will be completely rejected by Christ and everyone in it's going to hell. That's the bigger issue. Sometimes we go off on a tangent where they saved or not saved, where they saved or not saved, and we get into an argument with other Christians about uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Uh, Once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation? And I think the bigger point is this. Jesus is making it so clear He's going to puke out the church and everyone in it. And that's a huge, huge statement. Either they're unsaved today and will go to hell tomorrow if they don't repent, Or they are saved today, but will still go to hell tomorrow if they don't repent. Either way, the Laodicean church was full of men and women who were all going to hell if they didn't repent. So if some of them were saved, am I saying that a Christian can lose his or her salvation? No, I'm not saying that at all. No Christian can lose his or her salvation. But I do believe Scripture teaches us that someone can choose to walk away from the Lord Jesus Christ. I do believe God gives us free choice to reach out and accept Him, and He gives us free choice to walk away from Him once we've done that, if we choose. In one way or another, though, that's what this Laodicean church was doing. They had heard and possibly even accepted the good news of salvation, but they walked away from it. They tasted the goodness of God, but they abandoned God's goodness. And that put them in a position that to God was much worse than being an atheist or agnostic or someone who had never heard the gospel at all. I want you to remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 through 50. Jesus says this, That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. 
And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. See what Jesus is saying there? Those who have been given much, in other words, those that are saved, are held to a much higher standard. Listen to what the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. He says, If they had escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Those are some pretty powerful verses. Some very telling statements. Do you see what God's Word is telling us? You as a professed Christian will be held to this higher standard, a higher standard than any atheist who has never stepped foot inside a church. You have heard the truth about Jesus Christ. He is the Amen. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the ruler of God's creation. You know the truth that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through Him. You know that to be true. You know the truth that you are a sinner and need to repent of your sins and pursue righteousness. You know the truth that you are commanded to love the Lord your God and trust in Him and obey Him. And you have tasted and seen that God is so, so good. So if you refuse to repent and you choose to walk away from Jesus Christ after knowing all of that and experiencing all of that, you are in a worse position than an atheist or agnostic or some aborigines over in a nation that has never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. You're worse off than any of them because you know better. You know better. You've been entrusted with the very words of life. And to push that aside after those have been entrusted to you, is truly worse than being an atheist all your life. Jesus makes it clear. The flames of hell won't be too hot for those who receive Jesus Christ and after receiving Him, pushing Him, push Him away. Hmm. You have no excuse. You have no excuse. Well, to you, Jesus pleads, if you are one that has heard the Gospel, you know about Jesus, maybe even made a decision to accept Jesus, but you walk away from Him, this is Jesus' plea to you in Revelation 3, starting in verse 18. Jesus says this, I counsel you to buy from Me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. Salve to put in your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Repent. You have to repent. And take a look at Jesus' good promises starting in verse 20. Jesus says, If anyone, here I am, He says, Here I am, if, if anyone comes to Me, and hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with him and he with me. And I skip one of the most important parts at the top of verse 20. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Let me say that whole verse once again. Verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father 
on his throne. Well, in that second of the two verses, in verse 21, Jesus gives his readers hope that if they lean on him, he will help them overcome their unbelief and wickedness. And if they do, he promises that they can sit with him on his throne in heaven. And in verse 20, oh, what a glorious verse. It's the most well-known, most quoted verse in all of Revelation. In verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will let me in, I will come in and sup with him. Many paintings have been done over the years trying to depict Jesus knocking on that door. And most of the time when we quote this verse and talk about this verse, Christians will say, well, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. Now, this is such a popular verse. It's uh, the reference, Revelation 3.20, is even printed on the, ba- on the bottom of the In-N-Out hamburger wrappers. We love this verse, don't we? But is Jesus talking here about knocking on our heart's door? Not really. In the context, it's clear Jesus, here in Revelation 3.20, is talking about knocking on the door of a church. He's knocking on the door of a church. Why? Because the church has shut him out. The church has shut him out. He speaks to a church filled with men and women who talk about Jesus and sing about Jesus and preach sermons about Jesus, but all the while, they've slammed the door in Jesus' face. They've left him out in the cold. And there he is knocking, knocking, and knocking, patiently waiting for the church to invite him back in where he belongs. When an atheist keeps Jesus at bay, that's a terrible sin. But when a church pushes Jesus out the door and slams the door in his face, that's inexcusable. Absolutely inexcusable. And I think the book of Revelation is clear that the flames of hell will not be too hot for so-called Christians who gather together in fake churches that kick Jesus out on the street. Many of us wonder, are these kind of Laodicean churches around today? So-called Christian churches that shut out Jesus and make Him want to puke? Sadly, the answer is yes. And not only are those Laodicean-type churches around today, they're prevalent in our nation today. They're all over the place. Many of them have Christ in their church name, but they don't have Jesus Christ inside the building. Their pews are filled with men and women who are highly educated fools. They don't believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. They don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. They don't believe that all the moral commands of the New Testament are to be obeyed today. They share inspirational stories, but they don't share the Gospel. They talk about Jesus, but they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus because they really don't know Jesus. Yes, there are plenty of Laodicean churches in America. They look good. They smell good. uh, Sometimes they even sound good. But if you look closely, you'll notice something very important is missing inside that church. Jesus Christ. They don't have Jesus anywhere to be found. And that's because Jesus is standing on the back porch behind a door that's been locked from the inside. And He's knocking at that door and they won't let Him in. You see, Jesus in those churches has been replaced by an imitation Jesus, a fake Jesus that's been made in the image of man. 
Every Mormon church in America is a Laodicean church. They have kicked Jesus Christ out the door and replaced him with a fake imitation Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Word of God. The Mormons have replaced Jesus Christ with a fake Jesus, and they use many of the same words we use. They say many of the same verses we say, but they have kicked out Jesus and replaced Him with a sham, a fake Jesus, and a fake gospel. Every Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall in America is a Laodicean church. Jesus has been kicked out and replaced by a fake Jesus that they claim is just a created angel. And across America, there are Catholic churches and Lutheran churches and Episcopal churches and Methodist churches and hundreds of other churches that at some point in time have kicked Jesus to the curb, replaced Him with a cheap imitation and a watered-down gospel to go with Him that mirrors what our sinful culture prefers in a church. And the real Jesus, the one and only Jesus, turns to these churches and their leaders and says, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. God forbid that we at Impact Christian Church ever push Jesus out the door and replace Him with a cheap invitation. God forbid that we ever come to a point where we get so warped in our theology and and so self-serving in our motives that we push Him outside and replace Him with a fraud. Jesus is the great Amen. He is the faithful and true witness who is the ruler of God's creation. And He must always remain on the throne of this church and He must always remain on the throne of your life. If He does, you and I will sit with Him on His throne in heaven. He promises that. We will sit with Him in heaven if we overcome and continue to lift Him up as Savior and Lord of our life. Oh, never buy into the world's idea of Jesus Christ because the world peddles a fake Jesus. And so do so many thousands of churches across our world. You make sure that you worship and love and trust and obey the one and only Jesus of Scripture. Jesus Christ, our Savior, to God be the glory. Lord Jesus, we come to You praising You, honoring You, worshiping You, thanking You for being the great Amen. You are the first and the last. You have the final word. You have the final say-so. Everything You say is absolutely true. You are the true and living and faithful witness. We thank You that You are 100% trustworthy. And we thank You that You are Lord over all creation with all authority in heaven and on earth. Thank You, Lord Jesus. And we worship You today. And I pray, O God, that if there's any area of our life where we have sold You short, any area of our life where we have pushed aside any of Your Gospel or pushed aside any of Your commands, any area of our life where You have not been Lord over that part of our life, we repent right now, O God. In obedience to what You say here to the church in Laodicea, we repent. We're sorry, O God. Change us. Conform us to Your image. I pray that we would stop being swayed so much by our sinful culture 
and that we would just be swayed by you, that you would be on the throne of our hearts, on the throne of our minds, on the throne of our church. Lord Jesus, be Lord of our church and Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Although we don't see them in California too often, there are actually tens of millions of armadillos in our nation, particularly in the Southwest. There are especially a lot of them in Texas. And I was reading up on armadillos this last week. I think they're cute little creatures. Uh, They're scavengers, uh, but like most creatures, they're a little bit lazy. And they like to go after low-hanging fruit, so to speak. Armadillos like to walk along the side of roadways and eat roadkill and eat little scraps of vegetation and eat bugs that have been smashed on windshields and bounced off onto the street below. And because they like to to get this low-lying fruit, they'll notice in the middle of roadways in the southwest these bugs and little critters that have been killed by the vehicles coming down the road. So these armadillos have a penchant for going into the middle of the road and eating all these scraps, and then a car comes by and hits them. And this is common because armadillos have two main defense mechanisms when some creature tries to attack them. Out in the wild, armadillos, they're very good diggers, so when they are being attacked, they'll quickly dig a hole and hide in that hole to escape a predator. Well, that doesn't work too well on asphalt. And and these little guys, oftentimes, if a predator comes and they get startled, they'll jump. In fact, these little guys can jump more than three feet in the air. So you can imagine when a car is coming, they can't dig in the asphalt, and if they jump in the air, they're going to be a hood ornament. doesn't work too well. So every year, around a quarter million of these armadillos are killed on the roadways of America. And so in certain parts of the Southwest, these armadillos have been nicknamed, you ready for this? Hillbilly speed bumps. Hillbilly speed bumps. Because they, you know, have a penchant for going down the middle of the road. I got to thinking about these armadillos, and I want to ask you today, are you a hillbilly speed bump? Are you a hillbilly speed bump? Do you have a penchant for going down the middle of the road and not picking a side? Jesus Christ makes it so clear here in Revelation. You need to pick a side. You pick God's side, the side of the Lord Jesus Christ, or you pick the world's side. If you try to go down the middle of the road, you'll get smushed every time. Don't be a hillbilly road bump. Don't be a hillbilly speed bump. You pick a side, and I hope and pray that you pick the Lord Jesus Christ's side because that is the side of life. If you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ, I urge you to accept him today. We'd like to share the ABCs. A, admit that you are a sinner and need a Savior. B, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that he's your only way to be forgiven. And C, choose to follow Jesus Christ beginning today. I hope you'll make that decision today. Reach out to one of our prayer counselors if you'd like to talk more about accepting Christ or if you just have a prayer need, reach out to one of us today by phone or text. We would love to pray with you. And as all of us go forth with the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ, let's make sure that we walk in repentance. Let's make sure that we're the real deal, worshiping and serving and loving and trusting 
the one and only Jesus Christ of Scripture who died to save the world. It's Him that we celebrate this Christmas and it's Him that we lift up together every single week. To God be the glory. God bless you.